Hello, and welcome to Carrie Ann's Literature Corner. I'm your host, Carrie Ann Dillon, and today I'd like to talk about one of my most favorite short stories, Charlotte Perkins Gilman's The Yellow Wallpaper. Now, most people I talk to don't say, oh, that's a great fantasy short story, but I think that this short story really does have a place in fantasy conversations. So, The Yellow Wallpaper is often read as a Gothic or Victorian text with critics and scholars evaluating themes of duality, sexuality, and mental health. Critics such as Lucy Armit examine the text through the lens of closeted feelings and repressed desires, while Rosemary Jackson approaches similarly genre texts through considerations of language and function. Lucy Armit discusses the yellow wallpaper in her text, Theorizing the Fantastic, thus conveniently situating the story within fantastic conversations. In an effort to align the yellow wallpaper with additional critical discourse, I'm going to use Farrah Mendelssohn's Rhetorics of Fantasy and Rosemary Jackson's Fantasy of the Literature of Subversion in tandem. So in Rhetorics of Fantasy, which is one of my favorite critical texts to use with my students, Mendelssohn delineates four modes of fantasy, portal quest, immersion, intrusion, and liminal. I like Mendelssohn's classifications because they are usually a close match to the ways my students describe different types of fantasy stories during our pre-unit discussion. So portal quest, immersion, and intrusion are fairly self-explanatory, but liminality is a classification? Let's clarify. To Mendelssohn, liminal fantasy is, quote, that form of fantasy which estranges the reader from the fantastic as seen and described by the protagonist. So again, that form of fantasy which estranges the reader from the fantastic as seen and described by the protagonist. In the yellow wallpaper, the reader is privy to the narrator's thoughts via the epistolary nature of her journal entry storytelling. However, the reader maintains enough distance to be able to see the narrator's development from a detached emotional position. Though the narrator describes potentially fantastic happenings, the reader is left with plenty of room for skepticism. And the effect created with these techniques enables readers to situate the yellow wallpaper within Mendelssohn's criteria for the absurd in liminal fantasy. And that criteria is threefold. And Mendelssohn says, the liminal fantasy relies on a number of different techniques, but central to its construction of the absurd are one, irony and equipoise, two, the twisting of the metonymic metaphorical structure of fantasy, and three, a construction of a point of balance right at the edge of belief. I think the yellow wallpaper is an exact match to this formula because I think it utilizes all three techniques. So evaluating irony, language, and narrative structure should give us a rich critical approach to the story. Through the use of verbal, dramatic, and situational irony, the yellow wallpaper broadens possible interpretations of the narrator's position within the story. Uh, Sarcasm, discrepancies between descriptions and assumptions, and the reader's developing perception of the situation, I think fulfill the first criteria of irony in Mendelssohn's formula. 
At the beginning of the story, the narrator says, quote, John laughs at me, of course, but one expects that in marriage. And I can almost see the wry twist of the mouth that would accompany such a statement. My general hope in a healthy relationship being that one spouse laughs with me rather than at me. Uh, and a large portion of the narrator's verbal irony is about her husband, indicating to the reader that perhaps all is not well in their marriage. The wallpaper of the upstairs room discomfits the narrator, but after her husband denies her uh, decorative agency, she says, I would not be so silly as to make him uncomfortable just for a whim. However, the narrator expresses a real concern for her own health. Her husband again dismisses her concern, uh, forcing her to try and self-soothe. And the irony really occurs when the narrator writes, I'm glad my case is not serious. Of course, it is only nervousness. When, in fact, she is actually truly worried about her condition. And the tone of the narrator could be nonchalant. But her attention to details that are irrelevant to the other characters, I think, betrays her tenuous grasp of the real. So Gilman's use of dramatic irony compounds the aforementioned verbal ironies by allowing the narrator to make offhand assumptions about the setting, which definitely flag as disturbing to the reader. And Mendelssohn says that the tone of the liminal fantasy could be described as blasé, which disconcerts the reader and keeps one in suspense. So two primary examples of dramatic irony occur in the yellow wallpaper, one at the beginning and one at the end. And at the beginning, the narrator describes features of the house, just like in passing. And she notes, quote, hedges and walls and gates that lock and lots of separate little houses for the gardeners and people. And she observes of her room that it was nursery first, and then playroom and gymnasium, I should judge, for the windows are barred for little children, and there are rings and things in the walls. There is a gate at the head of the stairs, and the floor is scrouched and gouged and splintered. The plaster itself is dug out here and there. While the narrator sees and summarily dismisses these peculiarities, the reader is justified in reading them as textual clues uh, appropriate to an insane asylum. Uh, certainly valid and a widely critically acknowledged interpretation. The irony arises when considering who in the story is seeing clearly. Is it the narrator? Is it the reader? And of course, as Mendelssohn suggests, liminal fantasy, quote, creates possible readings. The placement of the room is not lost on a discerning reader. The topmost part of the house resonating strongly with what Armit considers, quote, the irreconcilable duality at the center of Victorian womanhood, which is the juxtaposition between being the angel of the house, or like Bronte's Bertha Mason, the madwoman in the attic. The reader questions if Gilman describes the room as a nursery because the narrator just had a baby, or because her husband infantilizes her as a result of her rejection of full motherhood. The narrator's attitude, when overlaid by the reader's understanding, I think contributes to this liminal space where fantasy has the potential to thrive. And after increasingly involved interactions with the wallpaper, the dramatic irony of the ending rests on the reader's ability to teeter on that edge of believing the narrator 
and seeing the narrator through the eyes of the other characters. Because by the end of the story, the narrator fully identifies with the shadow woman she perceives in the wallpaper, whilst her change appalls her husband, John. And the dramatic duality facilitates this comedic ending of watching John enter the room and subsequently fate at the sight of his wife creeping against the wall. So for all of his efforts at curing his wife, John's attempts backfire, which creates situational irony. Uh, The rest and cure for depression, which was a common prescription for women, treats women as passive objects without, say, in their own condition or treatment. And in the yellow wallpaper, the narrator's husband and brother are both physicians, which illuminate the obvious power imbalance between doctors and patients, as well as between men and women in the home. The narrator herself says, I disagree with their ideas. Personally, I believe that congenial work with excitement and change would do me good. The restrictions imposed by these men in her life bore her, and she resents John's discouragement of her writing. She recognizes that the rest cure represses her imagination, and her boredom recalls Mendelssohn's assertion that the liminal fantasy wallows in ennui. So liminal fantasy engenders an immersive fantasy for the protagonist. In keeping with the view that while liminal fantasy casualizes the fantastic within the experience of the protagonist, it estranges the reader, the narrator's madness occurs as an intrusion fantasy for the other characters and for the reader. The situational irony of the story builds on the fact that the narrator gains power and insight through her fantastic experience by releasing her hold on the real world perceived by the other characters in the story. So before we release our hold on the real world, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll move into the second part of Mendelssohn's criteria of the absurd in liminal fantasy. Welcome back to Carrie Ann's Literature Corner. We've had a look at some of the various uses of irony in the yellow wallpaper, and we're ready to look at metonymy and metaphorical structures, which comprise the second of Mendelssohn's three criteria. Before the break, we said that, quote, while liminal fantasy casualizes the fantastic within the experience of the protagonist, it estranges the reader, and that the narrator's madness occurs as an intrusion fantasy for the other characters and the readers. It's something that doesn't seem to belong in that situation. So, by embracing the woman in the wallpaper, we see the narrator is losing her tether to reason. Considering Gilman's yellow wallpaper as a fantasy text by a woman about a woman, I think allows the beginnings of a conversation about female disconnect from societal expectations. And I think that fantastic literature is well-suited to exploring the entrapment experienced by women in Gothic and Victorian texts. The structure of liminal fantasy enables female characters to experience their world as their own fantastic landscape, turning physical and mental entrapment into a cage or pattern of oppression 
from which their character can physically break free. Entrapment in the yellow wallpaper occurs both metaphorically as well as metonymically. Lucy Armit notes, quote, ostensibly suffering from postpartum depression, this protagonist is at war with her own body, rebelling against a family relationship which ties her both to a house and a husband that deny her autonomy. Armit is absolutely correct in her metaphorical approach. The wallpaper itself is a metaphor for the limitations the narrator experiences. The wallpaper is a domestic symbol, which devolves into a metaphorical cage of Victorian womanhood. Additionally, readers should recall that the narrator sees, and ultimately physically self-identifies as, a woman trapped in the wallpaper. The narrator reflects, quote, it, the wallpaper, dwells in my mind so. The wallpaper becomes something the narrator must decode and interpret, a series of actions which eventually align her with the woman in the wallpaper. The narrator describes a particular moment during which she watches the woman on the wall move about. She says, quote, In the very shady spots, she just takes hold of the bars and shakes them hard, and she is all the time trying to climb through. I think that woman gets out in the daytime. It must be very, very humiliating to be caught creeping by daylight. I always lock the door when I creep by daylight. The narrator draws clear parallels between herself and the shadow woman, transitioning from the shadow woman standing for the narrator's struggles to the way narrator frees and becomes her doubled self. In her text, Fantasy, the Literature of Subversion, Rosemary Jackson suggests that the movement of fantastic narrative is one of metonymical rather than of metaphorical process. One object does not stand for another, but literally becomes that other, slides into it, metamorphosing from one shape to another in a permanent flux and instability. Aligned with Mendelssohn's criteria that a liminal fantasy twists metaphoric and metonymical structure, Jackson's comment, I think, grounds a fantastic approach to this text. Gilman's narrator believes that she actually becomes the fluctuating figure of the shadow woman. Indeed, at the end of the story, the narrator wonders about the woman she sees creeping around the gardens and questions, I wonder if they all came out of that wallpaper as I did. The plurality of the woman the narrator sees does not preclude them from being her, nor she them. Armit posits that on one level, the women outside are more threatening to the protagonist simply because they are plural, and that the 19th century patriarchy forced women into a fragmentary existence which required them to function simultaneously and in all directions as once, as wives, mothers, daughters, but never autonomously as the singular or even the single self. In fact, the shifting of the shadows in women in relation to the narrator's use of I uh, homonymically recall, quote, the recurrent spot where the pattern lulls like a broken neck and two bulbous eyes stare at you upside down, unblinking eyes are everywhere, and the eyes go up and down the line. The eyes the narrator sees on the wall and the potential eyes she sees on the ground mirror her struggle for identity. The narrator's perception of herself and others is unstable, though from her own perspective, she now sees a more complete self. Investment in the narrator's self-reclamation, I think, creates the necessary cognitive dissonance to place the reader 
at this strange balance point between belief and disbelief. As a first-person unnamed narrator, the cohesion she claims for herself is the only agency she has. While she creates an identity for herself separate from mother, wife, sister, etc., inevitably unable to behave, quote, appropriatively, she is herself appropriated in the sense of being named mad, as Armit suggests. This appropriation of her identity and her perceived sanity is an external attempt to subvert the narrator's success at creating a unity of self. And the narrator ceases to distinguish between the I and the not I, the unity becoming a central thrust of the fantastic, according to Jackson. And this pseudo-epistolary nature of the narration, in which the narrator writes letters or journal entries to herself, create both an objective and subjective view of the narrator's fantasies. The reader is the one responsible for deciphering the ambiguity of the text, just as the narrator feels responsible for uncovering the mysteries of the wallpaper. The reader's active investment creates an intimacy with the text. Our feelings about the narrator's success contend with concerns about her mental health. And Mendelssohn reminds us that for liminal fantasy, this seemingly ordinary story feels like fantasy. We somehow know that it is the fantastic, the anxiety and the continued maintenance and irresolution of the fantastic becomes the locus of the fantasy. The periodic intrusions of John and Jeannie keep the reader from falling too deeply into belief by reminding all participants of the quote-unquote real world. However, the narrator's triumphant, I've got out at last, resonates intimately with an engaged reader, making it difficult to fully detach from her success. Situating the story within the techniques of liminal fantasy, I think allow for a broadened appreciation of the yellow wallpaper. And by evaluating this text using Farrah Mendelssohn's formula for the creation of the fantastic absurd, readers of all genders and backgrounds uh, are invited critical access. And readers are already able to identify with the themes of duality, sexuality, marriage roles, gender roles, historical limits, and perhaps psychological instability by engaging with the existing conversations around the text, which are a lot of fun. Liminal fantasy, however, demands a, a partnership between the author and reader. Through ironic language, the author can encourage the reader to identify with the protagonist, even though each participant processes information differently. Author and reader work together to create meaning and believability within a story. If the ironies are too vague or the metonymical metamorphoses are inaccessible, the author leaves the reader too securely in the realm of disbelief. In order to create a successful liminal fantasy, Gilman crafts a seesaw of believability and situates the reader at the fulcrum, too far in one direction or the other, and one loses the magic of balancing on this edge of belief. So while this may not be the most common approach to the story, I hope it has provided you with something new to think about. So do you think The Yellow Wallpaper is a fantasy story? Do you think there's grounds for this type of uncertainty? Or are you happiest examining this story um, from some of the more comfortable points of conversation? 
If you want to discuss it further, I'd be delighted to chat with you. So please don't hesitate to reach out by sending a voice comment on Anchor or sending an email to carrion at carriandillon.com. That's it for today's Literature Corner Conversation. I'm Carrie Ann Dillon, and it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. See you next time.